Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Brendan from Master Talk is here to join us on the Social Network podcast. Hey, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. But before we get to that movie, as we do with all of our uh, uh, incoming guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you love about movies. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Brendan. I'm the founder of Master Talk. It's basically a YouTube channel where I share uh, public speaking and communication information for the world to learn from so that, you know, podcast hosts can be better communicators or people who want to raise money for charity can do better with the way that they communicate. Now, I'd say the reason why I love movies is because movies are a way for us to to capture important lessons about life that we just can't really get in a book. You know, it's that emotional feeling that we get when we watch something interesting or different that we pull different lessons from. So that's why I love movies. It's kind of the notion of a thick or a picture is worth a thousand words. Is, is that kind of where you're driving? Yeah, and I guess a movie is worth a hundred thousand if you think about <laughs> it that way. Well, especially since it's a, mo- a set of motion pictures. Ooh, we have a tie-in. Uh, so this isn't necessarily your favorite movie. Most of the guests we bring on, we usually have them do their favorite movie first. But what are your favorite movies and why? Yeah, lots to think about. But I would say one that sticks out to me right now is a, is a movie you're all probably familiar with called uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons. So it's basically this movie with Brad Pitt and how how he was born really old and that he goes through life in reverse. And I learned a lot of lessons from that one. And I think the biggest one that stuck out to me was to really enjoy my youth because I don't actually have it for very long. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure Dana could speak to that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So, and our last question that we normally ask everybody, uh, I guess, what makes a good movie for you? I think I'm a bit different than most movie watchers in the sense that I actually don't watch many movies. So for me to watch a movie, somebody needs to recommend it to me and the lesson that they learned from the movie so that I watch it. So a lot of people told me to watch Benjamin Buttons. So that's why I watched and it was really insightful. Perfect. All right, so let's kind of get to this movie. This one's going to be kind of an interesting conversation because I think there's so much um, that comes from outside the movie that we're probably going to bring to this discussion given what's going on in the world today and uh, all of the things that have surrounded Facebook for the last few years. But uh, just uh, we're going to take this on at at face value and see where things go. So um, first off the top – we always ask this question of everybody, but what is your relationship to this movie? Yeah, sure. So, so I would say for me, uh, I, I used to work in, in technology investing a lot when I was in university. So I would help like startups get you know started, and I would read a lot of books about startups. And I read a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and he was the first investor in Facebook. So basically, he's the guy who put the first check in. And he was talking about how Mark Zuckerberg started the company, all that stuff. And then I learned about the movie shortly after I read the book, and I just said, oh, I wonder I wonder how they would portray his story versus what it actually is versus what they do in the movie. So so I decided to, to check out the movie, and it was uh, that's my relationship with the show, basically. So I remember this one back, I think this was 2010. This was up for Best Picture. Uh, it was the favorite kind of going in. Uh, it eventually ended up like most of the 
horse race favorites of the Oscars uh, over the last decade or so that it ended up finishing second place by the end of it. It spent so much time in first place that everybody kind of picked it apart. And I, the uh, King's Speech, which is a fine movie, but I, I – I think a lot of people think this was one that should have won uh, over that particular movie. And I, I know that there are a lot of hot take opinions usually that come up um, as to whether the Oscars gets it right or not. But this is one that I that I really remember because this is about the time in uh, my college years that uh, we really started paying – well, at least I started really paying attention to the Oscars, trying to watch just about every Best Picture nominee that there was. Um, and this was kind of an interesting race um, as far as recognition and how it went along uh, to kind of dig into. But, uh, Dad, what did you uh, – what do you remember about this movie going back? Well, I, I did not see it at the theater. I ended up seeing it on uh, pay-per-view. Uh, a few months later, um, and that's the extent of it. I'd seen it one time before uh, we watched it again this time. Although, <clears throat> I mean, I am an Aaron Sorkin fan, and to that extent, it would have some more meaning to me than others, but that's the extent of it. Aaron Sorkin is a guy that uh, we're probably going to discuss quite a bit moving forward, but he's a guy that you and I have uh, um, appreciated a lot over the years, uh, one of his big movies, uh, I, I guess it was more of his play that got converted into a movie, A Few Good Men, is a movie we haven't covered yet, but uh, is definitely one that's going to be up on our list. Um, also credited with big shows like uh, The Newsroom and The West Wing uh, that were Emmy nominated. So it's definitely going to be uh, something to pay attention to for anybody that pays attention to movies or TV, anything of that sort. It's going to, or he is um, maybe one of the few writers that anybody actually knows of. So the fact that he wrote this movie, uh, won the Oscar for it, uh, is uh, fairly significant for this particular movie. So uh, e this question's for either of you. You guys can figure out which uh, which of you'd like to try and take or tackle it first. But our next question up is, what is this movie about? Absolutely. Dana, do you want to go for it or do you prefer that? Feel free. You're the guest. Yeah, absolutely. So so based on my understanding, the movie w tells the tale about how Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook and how the early days of the company was. So what was, was fascinating about the counting of that tale was it wasn't just about, you know, all the amazing things that happened, but all the struggles, what Mark was before he started this company, how how Facebook was a, a series of lucky breaks in many ways also, and how he got the idea from another student in the same university. So I felt in that way, the, the telling of the movie was very authentic, even if the portrayals were a bit uh, cartoonish. But I, but I think overall, uh, that was the, the my take on the movie. And I, I think it's telling that this is based on a book called The Accidental Billionaires. Because really, to me, this movie is about um, a guy who had no idea that he was ever going to be um, wealthy, trying to figure out his way moving forward in a world where he's probably one of the most wealthy and powerful people in it, and uh, trying to navigate all of that where he has no personality um, that you would normally associate with somebody who's a titan of industry. 
I had a little different take about what this movie is. Um, having been somebody that's spent most of their lives reading biographies, uh, I come or have come to the conclusion that about 90% of those people who are who are worthy of having a biography written about them have a very warped life. They have become so focused on a particular thing that all other aspects of their lives fall to the wayside. And this movie exemplifies that point. Zuckerberg gave up all of his friendships. He uh, screwed everybody in his life over at some point or another to reach his uh, ultimate conclusion of making the Facebook into something that was unique and was completely his own and great. It was his way of achieving a level of uh, self-confidence of um, becoming something that he didn't feel he was, even though he may have been one of the smarter kids in the school and he was going to an Ivy League school. He was just a, a guy. He wasn't something special. This is the, what drove him to that point. And it's the same exempt, or it's the same experience that you see in a lot of entertainers, um, directors, musicians. They, they don't they get so focused on their achievement and achieving that point that their relationships, their marriages, their relationships with their children all fall on the wayside. Well, you see that definitely in a lot of powerful people. But this is a guy that it summed up a lot in the last scene where um, you're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. And I think there's a lot to that particular thing and how we look at Mark Zuckerberg. I have much different feelings now, 10 years later than I did at the time of who he was. This was a guy that um, was somewhat lionized a bit by the movie that you feel sympathetic towards. And I really don't feel particularly sympathetic toward him in a modern sense. I didn't feel sympathetic for him in this movie. I thought he really was an asshole. Well, I certainly feel that way now. The longer Facebook has gone on, the amount of things that they've been responsible for, I I just have a hard time not – either they're willfully ignorant or um, they just don't care. And I don't know if that's one and the same, but it could be. Yeah, no, interesting. I think think my point of view on this, especially coming from the tech space, is, is I just think Zucks is an interesting character. In the way that he's been able to build the product. I mean, he was one of the youngest people in the world to, to do such a thing. And most people have tried social networks in the past and have failed miserably. And I think what the movie showcases is why uh, why he won. He, he was just some insane guy, back to what Dana was saying, and how focused he was on the product, on that thing. He only cared about making Facebook successful. Even today, in, in many of the letters he talks to his employees about, his goal is simple. It's to connect the world at any cost. And I think by I think the movie showcased well his personality and what he'll do to get there. There is a certain set of ruthlessness that he adopts, or maybe not adopts. Um, it's it's hard to say. Uh, his original nature and how we interact from that first scene. I know there's a classic story of um, David Fincher when he was approached with this movie that uh, Sorkin wrote. He said, I won't do this movie because it's not a classic Fincher film the way we think of it. Most of his are fairly 
extreme, somewhat violent, uh, have a certain flair for them. And this is a much different type of movie, um, even if it does have his pacing and his uh, lighting as it, its primary focal points. But he specifically said, I'm not going to do the movie unless uh, in the first couple of scenes or in the first scene, um, it really hooks me. He read the first scene, and it's the first scene that we get of uh, uh, Zuckerberg with the girl, Erica, and um, Rooney Mara's character, and that whole conversation going back and forth, and that's really our entrance point. And to a certain degree, the movie would have you believe that that's the origination of Facebook by that particular conversation or that um, ideal. It's Zuckerberg's way of making up for his um, lack of belonging. He wasn't going to be able to get into one of the, uh, I, uh, I guess, I forget what the name of the clubs are called, but is it a finals club? Like sororities, like those types of, I forgot. Well, the they exact- had like, yeah, like the Phoenix or they keep talking about it um, during the movie. And I forget what the, the technical name is, but he keeps talking about how he's not going or that uh, that's his primary focus is to trying to get into one of these um, finishing clubs, essentially, or uh, something to that effect. And then on top of it, where he doesn't feel like he belongs in that, he doesn't really isn't the prototypical uh, guy in uh, Harvard. Uh, he also gets rejected by this girl in the midst of this conversation. And from there, he uses that as a, a springboard to create face mash, which obviously is somewhat scandalous in its own right. Well, to the to that extent, this is all about his ego. This is all about him trying to achieve status. The, the entire thing, who he's dating, who which clubs he's joining, who befriends him. And then when he's able to hook on with, um, and I'm drawing a blank as to the... Uh, uh jt uh sean parker sean yeah he tags on to sean parker he he doesn't care about sean parker what he cares about is the prestige that he gets from hanging with sean parker then he gets to know uh peter thiel who i mean you know, he's a billionaire at his own right at that point in time and is considered one of the bright stars because of the whole PayPal uh, creation. And it's all about status and social climbing. And that's what it's motivated by. So I won't speak for Brendan, but Dad, you and I were prototypical nerds. Um, we uh, do a ton of nerdy things like podcasting. And so we were always kind of somewhat on the fringe of um, popular culture, but never really a part of it uh, most of the time. So I guess, is there a sense that, um, what am I trying to say? That Zuckerberg has somewhat of a Napoleon complex? I think it is. I think that would be the, the term I would use because I think he just feels a little bit inferior. He's never... He's not the smartest. He's not the best looking. He's not the smoothest. He's not from money. So to some extent, he resents the Winklevoss twins through the entire film because they don't have to do anything. They're already wealthy and they're smooth and good looking. So they epitomize everything he despises. 
I think there is a line in there that um, gets to your specific point where it's specifically written in. This is the first time they haven't had something go right in their entire lives. And it's said in such a a way that you take it as either being sarcastic or resentful. But I I certainly see where your, your point is on that. Yeah, no, I think I think the point I'll add for this is, is that's why I find the movie fascinating because it's it's very cartoonish compared to what actually happened. So if you think about the Winklevoss brothers, I mean, they also bought one percent of all the Bitcoin in the world. They have a net worth of like a lot of money and they're going to be regarded as one of the best investors of our time. But the way that the movie portrays them is they portray them as these uh, <laughs> as these inferior, uh, you know, childish rich kids who who didn't get what they want as if uh it's like that 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 scene where the where a kid doesn't get uh, the candy that he's forcing his parents to buy him and he gets upset by it on the other coin you know you see zuckerberg where the media portrays him as this guy who's like always looking for status and that might have been true in the early days when he when he was in the face smash period in the first couple of years of facebook but definitely as he matured, like a, like if you take about Peter Thiel, I don't think it was really about ego, though I do think the media, the movie portrayed it. It was just because Thiel was uh, was one of the best social network investors at the time uh, because he knew Reid Hoffman, who was the founder of LinkedIn. That's obviously another very successful platform. But I think that's what's fascinating about the movie is when you compare what actually happened versus the, the cartooning of how directors and movie produ- producers make it look – um, and make it entertaining for people who don't know the, the context of the story of what happened. From a writing perspective, this is certainly one where they're fairly easy foils. Uh, the spoiled rich kid makes a lot more sense as a foil than just about anything else, because you're not going to root against Eduardo. More than anything, you probably feel the most sympathy for him. But at a certain point, uh, Zuckerberg can't be also the villain of the movie He's not necessarily the the complete hero because he doesn't always act with um, in ways that you would be completely sympathetic toward, particularly how ruthless he becomes in in gaining control of that company. But certainly um, he can't be the complete villain for the story to work. And in that case, it's probably one of those where um, the the truth is somewhere in between. But we didn't. It, this is more of a fictionalized version of it. All right, so let's get to the first uh, – well, actually, I suppose. I know most people probably know this movie, but uh, I suppose I should have uh, done the plot summary and the recognition a little bit ahead of time. So uh, we'll kind of move through that. Uh, in har- 2003, Harvard undergrad and computer genius Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, begins work on a new concept that eventually turns into the global social network known as Facebook. Six years later, he is one of the youngest billionaires ever. But Zuckerberg finds that his unprecedented success leads to both personal and legal complications when he ends up on the receiving end of two lawsuits, one involving his former friend played by Andrew Garfield, based on the book The Accidental Billionaires. Uh, For uh, recognition, this was nominated for Best Picture, as we've already mentioned, director for David Fincher, actor for Jesse Jesse Eisenberg. Um, It was nominated for Cinematography and Sound Mixing. It won Best Adapted Screenplay for Aaron Sorkin film editing, and original score. Uh, It was nominated by quite a few outlets uh, as the top movie of the year 2010 and for several or by several outlets as uh, one of the top movies of the last decade. Uh, So let's move into our first category, uh, best performer. So out of all of these 
uh, people that we've already talked about. We have Fincher, we have Aaron Sorkin, uh, we have Jesse Eisenberg. We we have multiple people all over the place performing well uh, in order to produce um, probably a cultural touchstone. I guess out of those, what do you find is your best performer, Brendan? Yeah, for me personally, out of all of the characters, I would say that the most the most interesting portrayal for me was when JT played Sean Parker. Because he did a really good job. Besides the fact that JT is just a lot more handsomer than <laughs> a lot more handsome than than Sean is in real life, but it was uh, it was fun to see how the movie cartooned Sean Sean pretty well, I would argue, uh, relative to what actually happened. So so lots of lots of kudos to JT and his performance there. Well, and I think that he plays a certain sense of vulnerability, but he's one of these guys that you could. Um, pass off a, a, there, there's a telling comment and this is part of why uh, my nomination is going to go in a particular direction in a second but there's a, a line in in the um, first scene that we see Timberlake where um, the captain of the football te- team was dating the girl that I thought uh, was really or that I had a crush on so uh, in order to steal her from him uh, I created Napster and that's the all of these guys, all of these characters uh, seem to have this same Napoleon complex that we discussed before. But that's a interesting kind of out-of-the-box nomination, particularly because for all of the people that are at the top of this movie, he's not one that's often heralded. So uh, good call on that one. Dad, what did you have down as the best performer? Well, just as following up to that, I know that uh, I heard an interview that Sean Parker did that he said if only he looked as good as JT uh, because oh. most people constantly refer, uh, confuse him and can't believe he's Sean Parker because he doesn't look like JT. So, um, but as far as that goes, uh, best performance I'm giving to Jesse Eisenberg. There's a certain vulnerability that he has. It would have been real easy for this part to be played by somebody that just came across as being a complete asshole, but it, it almost is a it, there's a vulnerability. He what he's you can see what he's trying to do, and it's almost somewhat forgivable for some of the things he does in order to achieve it. And I say almost because I think sometimes. Um, well, in the case of Zuckerberg, I think there's a certain aspect of he sacrificed so much, and and um, sometimes uh, you get what you ultimately pay for, which is you may have billions, but you're not well liked. So I've kind of alluded to it already. I head down as my best performer, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I do want to mention just before I get to that reasoning that uh, I think this is arguably um, Fincher's best film. Uh, particularly since he's done more producing work and TV work uh, since this movie came out. Uh, but overall, I think this this may be uh, possibly his best overall film uh, that he's created. And that's saying something because, I mean, he's created several other fairly classic movies. Uh, but for me, it's Aaron Sorkin. The entire movie is so well written. And frankly, everything that Sorkin writes seems to have some of the best dialogue you could ever ask for. But in this one in particular, I don't know how many times I've already mentioned different lines that exude certain points either of you has already made, but there's no co- or um, coincidence uh, 
in that. The amount of things that they display, that they call back to, that they wrap around or have um, great. Now, I I agree to a certain sense that um, Sorkin did um, Fincher with the pacing of this by the, the dialogue. And Fincher played it well because he must have seen at least a few episodes of The West Wing because there's a certain pacing to Sorkin dialogue that's got to be very quick. And you, you don't want to deliver the lines slowly. But that sets this whole pacing of the movie that never seems like it has a dull moment in it. And this this movie rolls very much downhill from about the first scene on. So for what it's worth, I think this is one of the um, great written scripts, at least of the last decade, if not uh, the last uh, 20 to 30 years. And for me, that's got to be worthy of the best performer. All right, so best minor performance. Now, we should almost say that this category is kind of adjusted a little bit uh, because usually we meant it to be more of a supporting role or somebody that was in that. I'm going to adjust this maybe and say that it has the uh, possibility of being the best secondary performance because there are a lot of lead people that could potentially do this. But, uh, Dad, who did you have down as your best secondary performer? Uh, I had um, Army Hammer because I loved the way that they played this. Uh, the the guys that you hit love to hate. Yeah, absolutely. I had the I had the Winklevoss twins. I think they did a really good job. Especially, I don't know who played them though. But um, what I found interesting about them is the way and how they they cartoon the character really well. I mean, we ended up hating them towards the end of it. So uh, and I like the balance between their need to 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 get what they want as rich kids that they are but on the other side uh, maintaining the prestige and the status of what it means to be that of a Winklevoss so that's why they never took uh, drastic actions against Facebook and they never did anything in an immature way so it was a nice balance of the two so you both have Army Hammer because uh, uh, he plays both of the Winklevoss twins or the Winklevi if you will uh, to refer to some of the script uh from the movie, but uh, I had down Andrew Garfield. He's not a guy that we've mentioned a lot yet, but this really springboarded him into landing the Spider-Man role and then doing a few other films after that. Uh, he hasn't had as much notoriety in the last um, three, four years, uh, particularly since they redid uh, Spider-Man again with Tom Holland. But uh, this is one where I thought he, he by far is the most sympathetic. He's the guy that the story is kind of told through and that there's that nice reveal in the middle of the movie that he is uh, the primary one bringing the lawsuit other than the Winklevi. Um, that, uh, and so this whole form of betrayal, it sets up the second half of the movie where why did the relationship fall apart? Particularly if you come into this movie without knowing um, too much of anything else that uh, was a part of this, as at least I did uh, at the time. I was not familiar with any of this story, really, uh, until such time as the movie came out. Um, so that takes us to our most charismatic. Uh, Brendan, who did you think basically stole every scene? <laughs> I'd probably say JT again. I just like the way that he... He grooves. I, I like the way that he, he takes control of a lot of the scenes and, and how he interacts with whether it's the women in the scene or whether it's the, the way that he sells Zuckerberg on the dream and how to build better product. I just like the way that he uh, he cartooned Sean Parker there, so I'm really happy with his work. <laughs> okay. I, I really don't have 
any knowledge of Sean Parker really outside of this. So, uh, but I do, I have a certain level of a man crush on, on Justin Timberlake and I'm not afraid to admit that one, but uh, getting or circling back to Dana's point, I think uh, just about every man on the planet would feel that they were more confident and better off if they looked like either Timberlake or uh, maybe Brad Pitt, DiCaprio. So uh, that's not a really uh, a strong confidence point. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's another one, John Hamm. That yeah. So, uh, but dad, who did you have down as your most charismatic? Boy, that was a little difficult for me because I didn't know if anybody, I guess JT is going to probably be the most charismatic because just by the, the fact of how he played the part, which was almost uh, an operator throughout the whole thing. Well, he tries to be the the smooth talking uh, kind of he's almost portrayed somewhat as a con man, uh, especially because it's most of his character is told through Andrew Andrew Garfield's like testimony after the fact. But uh, it's one where it was a good ensemble cast. So it's hard to say that anybody really stole the movie in most of their scenes. But because of the way that the story was written, how it was portrayed and what he came out of it, I I'm going to say Andrew Garfield because I, I literally think just about every scene he's in he pops off the screen and is by far the most compelling of any of the characters as far as uh, my opinion goes all right so uh we're gonna move on to best scene here uh if either of you has a comment I'm just gonna try and um run through a list of nominations that I have. If I miss any that you'd like to do, we'll cover that afterwards. But any comments that you have on the scenes, just be, feel free to kind of pop in um, and, and talk about it, anything that you appreciated from any of these uh, particular scenes. So uh, the first scene I have for nomination is the opening scene. Uh, I think it's it's the scene that really sets off everything else and kind of not only sets the tone but really gives you an understanding of Zuckerberg and his, um, I guess not value set, but what drives him really. Uh, you could say, and my second scene is the the face smash scene that is uh, immediately following that. But that whole opening sequence really kind of brings to the forefront exactly who he is and where he's going to go. Because you know, by even if you uh, only got a very small description of what this movie was going into it because I think most people, oh yeah, it's the story of how this guy founded Facebook. Well, okay, but in that description, you know by the end of it he's got to uh, discover or not discover, but create Facebook. So by doing that, how does he get to that point? And this is really the entrance point for most of us as to who this guy is and why why he was driven to do this in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say the add-on for for that, like uh, my favorite scene from the movie was definitely the, um, the well, actually building on what you said about the opening ceremony or the opening scene, rather. I think what's fascinating is it is it humanizes Zuckerberg, right? At the beginning, he's just a nerd who, you know, gets dumped by his girlfriend. He's not some billionaire uh, tech guy. And I think the message here for all of us is that all successes – or a lot, a lot of these great projects start from little nonsensical things. We tend to see Zuckerberg with Facebook and we go, oh, I guess he was always born to build Facebook when that was not the case at all. So you mentioned something earlier about all of the um, lucky breaks that he seemed to have or all the small things that kind of went into this and um, the certain 
things that all had to happen in exactly the same way. And I would say that's probably true of just about anybody who gets to anywhere in this world, especially with how many people we have and how complicated the world is anymore. Um, just from that standpoint, it's one of those where, um, if everything isn't exactly perfect, I, I don't know if he would have ended up in, in that regard, but now he's there. And so now how does he deal with all of these things that are thrust upon him as a result of it? And I think that's kind of where the, the term accidental billionaire kind of comes in is, is exactly that. Uh, all right. So if, uh, we have nothing further to add on that one. Um, the next one I had down other than face mash, which, uh, that, that entire sequence and rating girls and the rest of it kind of gives you that, oh, yeah, well, okay, this guy really is kind of an asshole um, type of thing. And so that's why uh, I do agree to a certain extent with you, Dad, that um, there is that sense or that hint of who his uh, true character is by that. Um, and uh, I, I feel that way. But I've since had much more complicated uh, feelings about Facebook. The next one after that that I wanted to mention, though, was Facebook me. Um, I remember – so I had – and I, I don't know about you, Brendan. I know my dad definitely didn't have one, but I had a MySpace page at this point. And about 2006, 2007 is when I first got the – uh, thing and I remember there was a girl in my class who said something about oh yeah you should really like look at this thing this is kind of cool and um, it, it doesn't have all the individuality of uh, fate or of uh, MySpace but the Facebook is actually kind of a cooler thing and I don't know why that stuck with me that that was like the first hint or inclination I had of this but uh I don't remember the last time I probably still have a MySpace page floating out there and I have no idea what's on it. I probably should try and like look at it and delete it once. But um, this kind of just took over and became the social media platform and was such a big revelation, particularly because as like the early years that I was going through or that everybody was going through, it was kind of my college years. So um, this is kind of an interesting um situation for the, this particular thing but that that phrase facebook me um you you think about the companies that uh have their own verb or have their own phrase attached to them google it uh facebook me he tweeted something today all of these things have become so ingrained into our normal day-to-day -day conversation that you recognize the importance they now uh have in our world moving forward and they're likely to stay for a significant amount of time. One thing you have to remember when you're talking about this is the moment in time, okay? <clears throat> it's much harder for somebody to create the next Facebook right now because there already is a Facebook. Um, you look back on history, the great fortunes were all created because at a moment in time, somebody was in the right place and had the right idea and the right technology so things fall in place. Bill Gates and uh, uh, came through it with uh, uh, Steve Wozniak at a time and and, uh, and uh, uh, Steve Jobs, they came out at a time when personal computers were really, you know, uh, Paul Allen, when they were just in their infancy. Okay. 
Um, you can even go back into time. John Rockefeller started pumping oil and refining it at a time when automobiles and uh, gas-powered engines were just starting. And so, you know, he just happened to be in the right place. Um, Andrew Carnegie started uh, Carnegie Steel at a time when steel uh, was just becoming important for the production of railroads and for rail cars and for um, buildings and the the, the steel girder was being developed in part by um, Gustav Eiffel and such. So it's it happens to be the moment when things are ripe for the next technology as well as just the sheer accidents of it. And this is when social media was really starting to take off, which is we started to have this period of where there was more isolation of people. And so they were trying to reach out to people through technology because they thought it was really a great way of interacting with more people than the select few you had as friends. It's tended to kind of reverse, but that just happened to be the moment in time. And for context sake, this is also the time or the period in time where um, we specifically get uh, the um, raising of nerd culture as being one of the dominant forces moving forward. And I, I do think that provides a certain sense um, as to why we revere the the tech giants a little bit more than we would have because they become um, such big forces in our uh, current environment. They've been somewhat lionized. Uh, for their industry and what they're actually doing. So, uh, all right. So the next one I had down, the dinner with Sean Parker, the whole sequence building up to that. I, I think that that's like the pivot scene in the movie. Everything before that is like the Harvard sense of things. And then you leave that dinner and it's the, okay, my world is completely different. I'm going to move to California with uh, the rest of these guys. And we're going to, make Facebook this bigger deal. We're taking all of Sean's advice. We're getting into um, these uh, angel investors and all of these other things start to to flow, but it pivots off of that one particular scene. And it's, um, I guess, best signified by the fact that it ends this particular dinner where you can see the resentment because it's being told by Andrew Garfield primarily in that that particular sequence. Where um, Sean Parker at the end of it says, you should just call it Facebook. Drop the the. And that's like the significant part of it. And, you know, Facebook is cool. The Facebook isn't. And you, you kind of see where the, the true pivot of this movie is. So I think it's a significant scene that sticks out particularly for me. All right. Uh, the next one I had up, forced cannibalism. If there is an indelible moment for anybody that's watched this movie a few times, and I completely forgot about this because I haven't watched this movie in several years, but it's the uh, whole sequence of uh, Eduardo being found out by the school newspaper of feeding chicken to his chicken. It's one right. of the few funny moments of this particular movie. No, it's funny. I actually forgot about that scene. It's good that you brought it up. <laughs> it was rather funny because uh, you can just see it. Um, how a lot of times, especially on college campuses, 
so much is made of so little. So I also want to highlight that one because uh, it's another one where some of these movies you'll throw out something that's comical or have an anecdote or something to that effect um, where you're going to have something thrown in that doesn't make sense with the rest of the movie. The fact that not only is this comical and that they throw this in, but they keep bringing it back around in multiple times because it's one of the sticking points in the whole lawsuit conversation. And Eduardo brings it up in the next scene I'm going to mention when he's forced out Um, and he blames Mark for all of the animosity because he feels like Mark has been trying to torpedo him for a while. And that was one of the first real um, shows of evidence that that was the case. So uh, we'll move forward into the the next one. I've now basically alluded to it, but um, Eduardo being forced out is probably the most climactic scene of the movie. It's not the final. There's probably about 15 or 20 minutes after that. But I think that um, the movie really – because for most of this, this is kind of a buddy journey adventure movie up until that scene. And that's why the whole betrayal thing in the middle of it that's kind of part of the reveal, um, again, especially if you were like me and didn't have any context coming into this movie, ends up working so well for this particular script and how it was written. Well, really, it is a climactic scene. And and, um, I guess what you have to understand about that scene, I actually understood it a little differently because, I mean, I've created a business. And what you sometimes will have is is people that are instrumental in starting the business and getting it going. At some point in time, they reach a point where their talent and skills do not fit with where you're going with this any further. And are you doing yourself or them a favor by continuing to allow things to lag and to just skate by and this is a classic scene where i think every and i'm not just saying it in this context but in this particular case it became obvious that he was not going to be part of the future of facebook and that happens in so many businesses where such a key part of the business no longer meshes that you you know that there has to be a separation and i think that's what that scene exemplified more than anything uh brendan are you a sole uh, entrepreneur or did you uh found your company with a partner you got it so uh, i started master talk alone and then okay. after I, I built a team around that that's why i think um it, it's fascinating i guess from an investor perspective when you kind of look at what happened with facebook because this happens a lot with many of startups in the valley in the sense that you know they start this idea they have this big vision and then, you know, shit hits the fan and everyone's kind of um, going through the stress and the high demand. Because most of these CEOs are working 80 to 100 hours a week, right? It's very high intensity. When you're under that much stress and especially at the beginning where, you know, you have nothing to hold on to. You're not sure if you're going to make it. There's a lot of animosity, a lot of hate that gets created in between a lot of people. So most most of those relationships do dissolve over time. Well, I find it interesting that you actually took the opposite perspective, Dad, uh, than most people do. In context of this particular movie, um, most people would usually defer to Eduardo because of how this movie kind of portrays the relationship. But you honestly take on the 
uh, perspective that if most people were put in Zuckerberg's shoes where they don't – if they really felt like Zuckerberg did it out of a um, place of uh, business smarts or um, that that was the only way to move the business forward as opposed to the retribution that's really um, brought through the movie or that's at least the way it's portrayed – uh, I think most people would defer to saying, okay, yeah, I understand what he did and why he did it. Maybe he's not an asshole. He's just trying to do um, what he feels is best to move his business forward. And I think more people would be able to or be more uh, potentially understanding. But we get this from a where it seems like it's more of a retribution thing um, to kick out his best friend. And so we're looking at it from a much different perspective of the human side of things where y- – this relationship, you know, it's it's difficult not only to maintain a relationship with the same best friend for a significant period of time, but then to start a business and a business that is so uh, powerful and influential and then goes on to do all of these things that once it gets past a certain point, does the relationship, let alone the business partnership, um, get changed or modify or um, how would you maintain that for anything? And I think that that's a relationship. I, I don't care whether that's uh, any type of relationship pre-existing the business. You would have to think that most of those would have a lot of strain on that relationship because of the business interests. There was a point in time when I thought loyalty was the or was a key thing. And to some extent, loyalty is important. But sometimes loyalty can blind you to the reality of a situation and you know if people are in a position where they're not effective they may put on a brave face but ultimately they know they're not being effective and it affects their mood it affects their success and sometimes it's just necessary to admit that things have changed or that the circumstances are not where they should be and to move on uh, unfortunately, people can take that too personally and become embittered by it. But sometimes, you know, it'd be better if people could just realize that there is a time where, you know, the skills I have do not mesh or follow the direction that this company is going or where they need to be. And it's better for me and it's better for them to move on. Um, loyalty then can be addressed by uh, helping somebody in uh move on and uh, both financially and by um, help uh, assistance in finding other employment or networking into finding something that fits your skill set better. All right. So and then I the last scene that I had was um, simply the final scene. Um, it was interesting that we cast somebody like Rashida Jones, who um, maybe wasn't quite the full level, but she had been in the office. Uh, she was already in Parks and Recreation by this point, although that show hadn't quite taken off. So for somebody that has a little bit of name recognition that she was going to get um, what essentially equated to be a kind of bit or side part uh, through most of the movie, she only has maybe one or two lines before that. But she probably has the audience perspective at the end of the movie and I think delivers it in such a way that um, gives a really good cap on the end of the movie um, at least from the significance of it and understanding what our questions were because she kind of asks 
or represents a lot of the audience feeling by that that point in the movie and gives us that conversation with Zuckerberg that you felt we kind of needed to have or uh, would have probably felt was missing from the movie had it not been there. No, that's a fascinating take, Thomas. I, th- I think the idea with the final scene that's worth mentioning is th- that most people probably don't see when watching the movie that people in the valley do is the is the cost of admission. Like, what does it mean to build a company? What does it actually cost? People see the success, people see the glamour, people see the glitz and all the houses that he owns, but they don't see the friendships that get broken, the people that he needs to fire the dirt, the, the, the knowingness that he might not even make it. The, and it's those elements that I think was really well portrayed in the end, especially in the settlement offer with Eduardo and Mark at the end of the movie. And they do allude to that. I, I you know, for all of these based on true stories, uh, you almost expect it as not necessarily, uh, I guess the thing I would relate it to is this is so cliche to end the movie with here's how everybody's story ended. It's very much in the same way that, you know, a Marvel movie is going to end with a cutscene after the credits. Uh, but you know how everybody turned out. I do wonder because there have been rumors for a long time. Um, Fincher's talked about coming back. Sorkin has talked about um, writing a sequel to this movie, how they would do so moving forward, because we really have, I think Facebook in its second decade is actually a much um, different type of situation and company than it was when this movie originally came out, when it was still in its infancy. And part of the thing was is, uh, Facebook was this cool thing, and now it's kind of become much more cemented. We've seen uh, the potential evil that it can drive in the, in the world. One thing I wanted to mention with the Rashida Jones character um, she's the young associate sitting across the table, okay? The senior partners are the ones asking the questions and being in the in the dirt, in the um, in the line of battle, doing all the, you know, the heavy uh, cross-examination, all this stuff, okay? And <clears throat> having been there, that's the purpose of your associates sometimes. You're so busy focusing on how you're going to screw over or what question you're going to ask to nail this guy, that you're not watching the big picture. And so sometimes you bring in the smartest or the most observant or the most self-aware associate to sit there and just watch what goes on. Watch the body language of the witnesses, watch the methods on or the method of the madness and, and to, give perspective at the end of the day. And I think to some extent, that's what she was there to do. She just happened to turn around and give it to the client instead of to the senior partner. So out of any of these, uh, did I miss any that you felt should have been included? No. No. I think I think you got it pretty well done. All right. So out of these uh, scenes, the opening date, face mash, Facebook me, dinner with Sean Parker, forced cannibalism, Eduardo forced out, and the final scene with Rashida Jones. Um, which of these would uh, you say is the best scene, Brendan? For me personally, definitely the dinner with Sean Parker. I just love the way that he, he gathers. I love the way that he, he enters the room. But above all, I love that balance between who he is as a character and the advice that he gives Zuckerberg during the dinner and then subsequently just leaves. 
so I, I just so that was my favorite one personally. And I would tend to agree with you. I, it wasn't the one that I thought I would have as the best scene coming in, but I've kind of in describing it and how we kind of talked about it. I think that is the one where um, you get the real pivot in the movie, and it it becomes one of the most pivotal scenes. Uh, Dad, what did you have down as your favorite scene? The same. Um, I also have read uh, Peter Thiel's, or at least one book by Peter Thiel, and and listen to him and talk or talk about how you know with uh, PayPal and how things started and working with Elon Musk and some of these other guys, and they they were rock stars, and that's ultimately what it became. And Sean Parker. It becomes a rock star. And you can see, if you're uh, Zuckerberg, how you could be so enamored. You want to be that guy. And that really is where it took Facebook from being, you know, a mom and pop operation to this is going to be something big. Uh, All right. So we all had the same one. But uh, what would be your favorite scene? You've kind of alluded to it already, Brendan, but I just want to confirm. The, is that opening scene kind of your favorite? Yeah, I would say out of all of them, like definitely um, the best scene and the favorite scene for me is is going to be the same. So uh, the dinner with Sean Parker was, in my opinion, my favorite one just because I just like the way that JT has had portrayed him in the short moment that we kind of get a glimpse of what he does. And the reason I'm so passionate about this scene is because it's very similar to how Sean Parker was in real life, though they portray him a bit like more cartoonish in the movie. I mean, Sean Parker is a very incredibly successful and talented individual. You know, after he left Facebook as the president of the company, he went on to help Daniel Ek at Spotify negotiate a lot of deals with the music labels. And it's because of him that Spotify was able to enter the U.S. and essentially build such a big business. So I think uh, I just I'm just a big fan of Sean Parker. So I guess I'm biased. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I had down the opening date and slash face mash. That whole 15 minutes to open the movie is probably what really sucks you in. And it's just a fun sequence that if I had to rewatch um, basically one piece out of this movie, that would probably be it. So, uh, Dad, what did you have down as your favorite? I like the opening scene because I think it really set the tone of what Zuckerberg was and what he was going to become. So uh, the final piece that we have here on this one is most indelible moment. Uh, just as a refresher for the audience and our, uh, our first time guest, it's essentially what is the moment scene line uh, or memory that you take away from this the most? The thing that uh, somebody mentions the social network um, about five years from now that you're going to think of when you somebody mentions this. Uh, Brendan, what do you think? For me, I I would say the biggest moment was when Sean Parker looked at Zuckerberg and he says, you don't call it the Facebook, you call it the Facebook. Because I think that that was the part of the scene in the movie where the platform went from a school project to being a real thing, like to, to taking it more seriously, to going global, and to not think about it just on a college campus. So that's really, I think, when the real company was born in that moment. Well, I'm going to use a scene that we haven't discussed, <clears throat> and that is the moment where he's brought into the uh, uh, into the dorm or the club by the Winklevoss uh, brothers, and he's looking around and he's overwhelmed by their prestige and their money and everything. 
<clears throat> and they pitch their idea. Um, that to me, I've been there <laughs> and, uh, um, you could just feel how uncomfortable he was because this is the epitome of everything he wants in life but doesn't have. And it's almost like the wheels are spinning of how he is going to achieve that status. And um, to me, that just kind of is telling of the ultimate outcome of the movie. That's interesting because I, I don't remember getting almost any of that out of there. So that that's interesting you read that that much into that particular scene because it seems like it's um, kind of a transitional scene. So for that to be your most indelible moment, I, it certainly uh, is noteworthy. I, well, I've I had just... a hard time figuring out what the most indelible moment per se is um, in, in this – but I guess if I am going to put it down, I would say when we finally get the reveal that uh, Eduardo is is suing um, Zuckerberg um, and you were supposed to be my friend, that whole sequence where you kind of get that that first level of true betrayal and, oh, OK, this is what's what's going on and all of the things that kind of surround that. Um, if anything, that was always the – because the relationship really is about the two of them from the majority of this movie. And it, it that's what kind of drives most of the movie up to this point is um, that relationship to start and why it ended up uh, building in the first place. And then secondarily, uh, how it deteriorated at the end. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back to our discussion on the social network from 2010. Um, I'm here yet again with uh, Dana Duncan and Brendan from Master Talk, uh, his YouTube channel. So uh, before we let you go, Brendan, we wanted to make sure that uh, you had a chance to uh, grade this one out with us. This is the real point of our shows every week. Um, how we find the greatest movie of all time is uh, taking this rubric approach of adding these categories together and kind of grading it out on an average to uh, give each of these movies more of a scientific approach um, to what we think may be the best movie of all time. And so all of these kind of um, bring up to things that we feel or value as important um, in figuring out what that movie is. So in this particular case, and I, I will give a refresher for you and the audience as we kind of go along, uh, the first one that we always decide is legacy. So for instance, more than five years after this movie came out until now, so roughly about from 2015 to now, what is the legacy of this movie on a scale of 1 to 10 how do people think and or think about this movie and appreciate it? Is it still referenced in pop culture or talked about as a must-see movie? Uh, for me, I went with an eight. Uh, so I will just kick this one off. 
This is a movie that uh, made a lot of people's end of the decade list. Uh, particularly as we moved into 2020 this year, you saw, you know, the end of 2019, people were making a lot of end of decade lists. This was one that was on a lot of people's top tens. Uh, this is a movie that I think has gained more significance. Um, the more Facebook has become a bigger company and um, played such an importance, uh, particularly in the geopolitics of the world uh, going on, uh, foreign affairs and otherwise. And this is still something that I think... Um, is a fairly popular movie on Netflix that a lot of people still just will go back to. This is for being the subject material it is and being somewhat of a biographical film. There are a lot of people that watch this movie uh, a lot or rewatch this movie quite a bit. So from that sense, I think it probably deserves somewhere in the eight range. And uh, just so uh, we kind of give Brendan some perspective, dad, what did you have down on legacy? I had an eight as well. And originally I had thought about giving this a lower score because I don't think this movie has been the go-to as much. What I'm giving the legacy on is the fact that Theodore Roosevelt once said that if you don't define yourself, you'll let someone else do it. And, and to some extent, this movie defined Mark Zuckerberg, Sean Parker. I mean, there's a reason in the popular culture people perceive these people as who they are. And it's in large part by how they were portrayed in this film. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better. So out of that and what we've kind of already discussed, Brendan, what do you think would be the legacy score one out of 10? I, I actually agree with both of you completely. And this idea that uh, this movie was very defining, not in terms of how the, the, the culture in general understands the companies from the Valley and Facebook's history, but also in terms of, what would happen in five years and as the company became more successful the the legacy behind this particular movie became more and more fascinating so i agree with the scoring i would i would go with eight as well all right so averaging that out that's pretty easy so that's a, a full eight for all of us uh for a final eight for the category so impact significance this is going to be more in the moment uh during that particular um place in time this was an extremely popular movie um, for being a, an Oscar-nominated movie and not, you know, one of the blockbusters. It wasn't an action film. Um, it isn't a um, comic book film or one of these giant tentpole movies. It's not Star Wars or any of those. But this movie was relatively successful. This movie did have a lot of buzz around it. I'm wondering if I might have graded it too low, but I gave it a 7.5. Um, for the amount of categories that was nominated for, I think it was nominated – if I remember right, uh, I'd have to count it back up, but I think it was roughly about uh, eight to ten uh, total award nominations that particular year. It was the Oscar front runner going into the awards uh, up until the very end, and this was a movie that had a lot of buzz around it. Um, people seemed to really love it. I think from a pop, if we had uh, had the popular Oscar. Um, that uh, they suggested a couple of years ago. I think this would have probably won hands down of the movies that had been nominated for uh, Best Picture. It didn't ultimately win, and I think that's part of why people um, have uh, said that they got this particular award wrong, because I think this is the most popular of that particular field that year. So I gave it a 7.5, but I'm thinking I might have been a little too low. Uh, Brendan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, my thinking was probably an eight, I would say, and the reason is because um, the impact that Facebook has made on, on our culture is significant. I mean, if you think about it, just 15 years ago, Facebook wasn't – nobody was on Facebook. And now all of a sudden, for every generation that's going to be born, 
um, they're all they're all living on Facebook. So now what I uh, and that's that's what I think adds a lot more points to the movie itself because understanding where that started and how that journey began I think is going to have a, a larger cultural impact as time goes on. So this is where this particular thing in these categories get a little tricky. What you kind of are referencing there um, is maybe a little bit more to do with legacy. Um, I will add in the fact that there are whole countries right now that their entire internet source is based on having Facebook. Uh, part of the whole situation in, uh, I think it's Myanmar, um, with uh, the genocide that went on there is the notion that their entire internet supplier tends to be through Facebook. So the fact that that internationally, I mean, we're, we're somewhat um, American-centric sometimes in our thinking, or at least, you know, northern uh, or North American or European-centric, um, that this has such a global footprint um, is significant. But I think that tends more into legacy. In the moment itself, um, I, again, I, I don't defer. I think your aid is probably about right. I might even tend to go a little bit higher, and I'm, I might be talking myself into a higher score than I gave it. Um, but what, what do you think, Dad? I'm going to make it easy for you on the calculations. I'm going to give it an 8.5. Um, <laughs> it, actually, you know, and I'm not just doing that for the heck of it, but that's what I had. And the reason is right. simple, okay? I'm 56. I'll be uh, 57 in a couple of months. Um, I had no idea who half of these people were when I saw this film because this is all tech stuff. And this was not, you know, I could tell you Warren Buffett. I could tell you Stephen Jobs. I could tell, you know, I could tell you Michael uh, Eisen, you know, all these, you know, but tech was different. It didn't, it wasn't real to me. It seemed still kind of, you know, trendy and not real, not real as far as a business idea. These people, it brought these people more current. And I'm going to say that I'm not the only one of my age who was in this situation. And so I actually started looking at these people more and reading some of their materials and studying them and studying some of the people who came through that that uh, time frame and, uh, and getting a good feel. So to that extent, I think there's been a significant impact that's made tech and tech heads more mainstream. Uh, novelty, uh, I had an eight and a half. Um, there, are, This is really the only movie of its kind. I mean, there are a lot of biographical movies. There are a lot of um, entrepreneurial movies, but this is the only one that's really in a modern sense. And uh, for all of the things that kind of went through it from a writing, a directing uh, perspective, and all of the other things surrounding it, uh, I had to give it a fairly high grade on the novelty. But Brendan, what did you have? I, I completely agree with the grading on this one because it is very unique in the sense of what the film is. Right? It's, it's very one-of-a-kind. There's not many other movies about social networks or even the Valley in general. So I think it was a very interesting, uh, though cartoonish, uh, portrayal of what happened in the early days of Facebook. But it was it was fascinating and entertaining nonetheless. Dad, what did you have down? Uh, eight. Just um, I, I think it's... It, while it was unique in the, the subject matter, it wasn't the first time this has been done for an industry uh, uh, creator or uh, somebody who set the 
the base of an industry. There have been other films that have been done like that. All right. Uh, so classicness. This is probably one of our more difficult categories, uh, and I'll just try and give a refresher on this one for the audience and for Brendan, um, just to make sure. But uh, has this movie essentially aged well? Uh, are there things in here that are now uncomfortable? Basically, was it ahead of its time? Did it tell a story that um, kind of in now retrospect um, is appreciated more or less? Do you feel the same way about this movie that you did kind of when you saw it? Or do you have a better appreciation for it now? So I I gave it a nine. I think this movie is impactful we feel about it a little bit different, but it's got a certain classic sense because you see the under uh, seeds of the decade that was to come from Facebook and the other tech giants. And this was kind of our first entrance point into a lot of this uh, much larger world and what would come over the, the last decade. Uh, Brendan, what do you think? I, I completely agree. Once again, I, I think that I definitely think the movie has aged well. And I think a good analogy that you can make that's not really related to social network, but rather sports was Michael Jordan's Netflix documentary, The Last Dance. Even if the the championships that he had won were in the late 1990s, for the most part, and his basketball career was 20 years ago. Just by watching that, those movies really, or rather the documentary episodes, really makes things reminiscent of the past and, and shows how much that sport and rather this movie has aged well in the culture. Uh, Dad, quickly, what did you have down? Um, I had down uh, an eight and a half. Um... I think it cemented my feelings towards Zuckerberg after having watched it again. That comes to an 8.83. If you've been following at home, it's an 8.8, 8.33, and 8.83 so far for our category. So a lot of eights so far in here. But quickly, Brendan, um, before we uh, have to get you out of here, what do you think for rewatchability on this movie? Is it – I guess on your particular scale of this movie, what do you think uh, its rewatchable scale should be? Yeah, I'd probably give this a 7.5, and the reason is because, you know, it's definitely rewatchable. But I probably wouldn't re- – it's probably not a movie I'd rewatch every year. This is more of a, a watch once in a decade kind of thing. As, as you see Zuckerberg move from one stage to another, you know, as he gets into his 30s, as he gets into his 40s and 50s, those are probably the moments I would say to watch – and kind of compare to where he is now uh, versus how he started. So I put it down as a six, but pretty much for the same reasoning that you had. Um, the once in a decade thing is something we haven't said on the podcast, but I may steal that from you. Dad, what did you think for rewatchability? I had a six. Pretty much for the same reasoning? I, if I watched it more than, than every five to ten years, I think I would be bored. <laughs> I, I do think this this movie is more fresh. You had a decent comment on this on Wednesday, Dad, with one of the uh, episodes we had, uh, where sometimes you need a space from a movie in order to come back and watch it. Uh, this is one of those that if I rewatched it several times in a row, I think it would get very old and boring, but much in the same way that uh, you just mentioned. But if you give it a space, if you watch it once every three years, this could be easily revisited. Uh, all right, so... With a uh, that makes that a 6.5, so we have an 8.8, and a 6.5 added to the total audience score of uh, uh, 8.6, which was an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I love that we're doing so much math on this episode, it's probably <laughs> the most math I've seen in a podcast. You got all it. right, so 48 
0.26 as our final total, and that will place it on our list. Wow. Um, right in between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Goodfellas, which are actually two of our highest uh, represented episodes. Uh, do you feel that's a decent placing? Yeah, absolutely. And I would love for you to send me this list, too. That sounds this is very uh, accurate. I love the accuracy of the content. I'm looking forward to getting this list and checking out the films that I haven't seen yet. So um, just uh, so everybody's aware, I do link the list. It is available on my blog um, as well as the show notes for every episode. They are both linked in every set of show notes. Um, so if you open up the tab on any of these particular episodes, there are links to both of those on my uh, blog where you can see every different entry. But uh, for your first episode on our show, Brendan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, you two are very – you guys know your movies. Let me put it that way. I think I think I got to sharpen up my my like right now I sharpen up my public speaking skills, but I guess I got to sharpen up my movie skills, too. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep Absolutely. you in mind here going forward. But uh, just before we let you go, uh, where can everybody find you and uh, make sure that uh, they can follow your path? Yeah, absolutely. So so for those of you who want to check out my journey, I, I make YouTube videos on public speaking. So if you want to look me up, that's master talk in one word. And if you want to check out my Instagram page, send me a message and tell me how bad I was at rating movies today. You can do that at master your talk. I'm always hoping to any insults or complaints as well. Well, given that this entire uh, podcast has been about social media and uh, um, possibly the toxicity of it uh, in its founding, let alone uh, all the things we weren't able to get to um, with uh, social media over the last decade, I would probably encourage people not to necessarily <laughs> write that to you. But um, thanks for uh, joining us for this. Uh, we uh, have to I understand we have to let you go. Uh, Dana and I will take it on from here. Such a pleasure, you two. Have yourselves an awesome evening. All right. Thank you for uh, continuing on with us uh, after our great guest, uh, Brendan, had to go. Um, we'll cover the rest of the pieces of this movie. Um, if uh, you want, uh, we're going to be covering Bull Durham on Wednesday with another guest of ours, Roger Walkoff. Um, but uh, before that, we have a couple other things to just address uh, about this movie or things I wanted to get to that we uh, just didn't have time with our guest. So first up would be best lines. So I have a couple here and just uh, let me know if um, I have some thoughts or um, I guess any other ones that you want to contribute here after I go through these. I have about, oh, five or six. First up, Mark. People want to go online and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that? Eduardo, I'm not talking about a dating site. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. It's one of those summation lines that I always love, so it's why it got put on there. But uh, Number two, Eduardo. Everybody on campus was using it. Facebook me was the common expression after two weeks, and Mark was the biggest thing on campus that included 19 Nobel laureates, 15 Pulitzer Prize winners, two future Olympians, and a movie star. I still don't know who the movie star is. I, I've never really been able to figure that one out, but all right. At Harvard? At the time, yeah. Wasn't it um, Natalie Portman? Could have been. I don't know. I think it was Natalie Portman. Uh, number three, Erica. You write your snide bullshit from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I won't say anything political. You just kind of made it political by saying that, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think this is just more of a telling comment because it really doesn't matter. I mean, we got so much of this. I, I remember the first instance where I really felt the whole nature of trolling and the toxicity of the internet and all of these other things. Cause I'm not somebody who sits in comment threads or does this whole other set of stuff. Um, more or less, uh, what I guess the, the, point in time where I really remember it was uh, the last Batman movie from um, Christopher Nolan came out in 2012. And this whole set of people calling themselves trolls uh, came out and uh, basically tried to tank the movie by making every uh, obscene comment that they could about it in the comment sections and rating it poorly and doing all of this stuff. And I'm like, why do people want to do that? How is this fun for them? And it was really, um, I'm trying to think of the word prophetic, um, that that's basically the world in which we exist, almost solely. There Did are you so say many prophetic places. or pathetic. Sure, I said prophetic, but um, I yeah okay. Uh, but even so, I, there are so many places that exist, particularly in social media, that. Um, are just such toxic spaces anymore, uh, particularly Facebook in the last you know five or so years, that this is kind of one of those where you write it at the time and it works out and all of a sudden you have something else on your hand when somebody watches it five, ten years later. Uh, number four, Christy and Eduardo. Christy, you're asking me to believe that the CFO of Facebook doesn't know how to change his relationship status on Facebook. It's a little embarrassing, so you should take it as a sign of trust that I would tell you that. <laughs> All right. Um, and this is the character name of Rashida Jones's character, so Marilyn uh, Delphi. Um, and I think she has uh, two particular lines in this, uh, including the one at the the end that uh, we've mentioned multiple times in the, in the show. But um, you must really hate the Winklevosses. I don't hate anybody. The Winklevi aren't suing me for intellectual property theft. They're suing me because for the first time in their lives, things didn't go exactly the way they were supposed to for them. This is one of the lines that I paraphrased earlier in the episode. But uh, again, I, I take it back to that. I didn't see it that way, but you, you've made an interesting point that there's almost a resentment and a snideness uh, to that particular comment that um, – he was never going to be a part of that club and realizing it now that you mentioned it as your most indelible moment in that particular moment where he realizes I'm never going to be a part of this class. So uh, I have to do my own thing or create my own class that's well above this in order to exist um, or get the things that I value or want, uh, I think is probably uh, summed up a little bit in, in part of this line in between the lines, not explicitly saved. See, you don't understand it as much because you're the son of a lawyer who's been involved in local politics and has a certain level of prestige. Uh, I came from a, and I'm not minimizing or criticizing my family or my experience because I, I, I had a good childhood. My parents loved me. I was stable, whatever. But my family didn't just come from the wrong side of the tracks. 
they came from the other side of the pond on the other side of the tracks without a boat or an oar. And um, uh, so there's a level of resentment that I've had to overcome because I've often felt that I was minimized, dismissed, looked down upon by certain aspects, even through high school, even going back to my class reunions, kids whose families were more uh, well-connected than mine, there's a certain aspect where you feel like you're looked down even at this point in time when most of them I could probably, and I'm not trying to you know, uh, blow my own horn, but I, I think my accomplishments uh, are uh, significantly greater than some of them. Some of them still seem like they're stuck in high school. And... Uh, uh, but you you have that level, and and that's what I see in this film. I pick up, and I've used this term before, but a film is a Rorschach test. It is you see in a film what your experiences are and what you know about yourself and about life. And so for me, having gone through this and having been in the Zuckerberg position, going to a private school with wealthy families and wealthy children and such, um, you just see this struggle much more clearly than other people would. Ultimately, though, like, I, I, there are two pieces to pick on that from you, and I, I, forgive me for nitpicking a little bit. I understand where you're coming from, and I recognize that I have a significant amount of privilege as a um, straight white male um, from middle America who grew up in the upper mid class uh, for most of their life, I'm going to have a lot more unintended privileges than basically anyone um, in the entirety of the world. That being said, I think there is a little bit of universality to not fitting in or not belonging. And you can understand or relate to that in some sense, because there's always something you're excluded from. Um, some people have it more than others, and so I can definitely understand or appreciate that you may have been shut out of more potential opportunities than I ever would be because I'm the second generation. But that doesn't mean that I don't have some point of uh, relation to it. Uh, second, it's hard to say that he's completely shut out of all of this stuff because ultimately everybody that goes to Harvard – you know, I, I mean, he was already yeah. going to be somewhat of an in an elite status level by being there. He may not have come from that originally, and he may have to prove himself a little bit more than other people that come from that old money or that were legacies or whatever else. But uh, I do think that there is a sense where he would have been a, much further ahead than most people that had even the opportunity to go there um, because Harvard does have that reputation and all of the alumni take care of each other. So there, there is something added to that particular sense. Agreed. And there, there's a certain aspect of knowing what you, how to put this. There's a, there's a certain thing that you have to understand about life, which is that having the knowledge that you can actually do something that you don't necessarily anticipate. For example, you know, I only applied to a few law schools. You know, if I go back now and look at where I was, I should have taken the LSATs 
uh, more seriously. I should have taken them twice. I should have applied for big, bigger and better law schools. But I didn't know any better. And so I, you know, you, Jack Canfield tells the story about an elephant who has a chain around its leg at, at the circus and it only, as, a, as a baby and it's chained to a stake. And then it only knows it can go so far. And then when the elephant gets to be an adult, obviously this chain around it can't continue because the elephant's leg is bigger. So they cut it. But the elephant has been so trained to know that it can only go so far around that stake, it never tries to venture out. And that's unfortunately a problem that a lot of people have. And I myself, in retrospect, had that problem. It never dawned on me I could be more than I thought I was. All right, so let's get to the last two that I had. Um, Erica and Mark, uh, I think we should just be friends. I don't want to be friends. I was just being polite. I have no intention of being friends with you. Um, yeah, that this is basically the underlying and um, giving voice to that conversation everybody has with their ex or anybody they've ever dated. Um, nobody really – I mean it's – it's possible, but it's very rare that you're ever really friends or have the same type of relationship with anyone you stop dating. I, I don't care how many cliche times we say, well, we should just be friends. Nobody's buying it. Uh, and then finally, the, the the other summation line that is at the end, um, but uh, we've mentioned quite a few times on, on the show so far, uh, Marilyn Delpy, you're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. And I will say, when I when I heard this particular line, and almost every time I hear it, there's a certain level of a pit in my stomach that is kind of there um, when that, that happens. And you kind of – it's like when uh, somebody gets a really good burn on somebody because they epitomize who their character and their um, uh, personality is to a T – and that's really what this line does. It gets it right at the heart of what he's been this entire movie and drives a stake into it. So uh, of any of those, what do you think would be the best line? The last one, the asshole line. It's hard to deny that one. Uh, I will definitely put that one in uh, just because I think that before I even went back and rewatched this movie, it I remembered that line because it is so important. It, it's basically the ending line of the movie. Um, but uh, I went I, – now that we talked about it as much as we did, uh, I do think there the uh, – you must really hate the Winklevosses and uh, that, that entirety of that conversation um, kind of undergirds um, kind of what this movie was about. I will say that uh, I'm going to put on the uh, summation line as well as the um, rather prophetic uh, line that we had before as uh, honorable mentions. All right. And if I have to put down a funny line, I'm going to put down the um, I think we should just be friends because, frankly, anybody that says that is fooling themselves and uh, that's kind of funny in itself. I'm so glad I haven't had to hear that line or that statement in 32 years. <laughs> Fair enough. I have a few remaining questions. Do you have any? No, not really. So there is one particular question that is central to the movie that I don't think 
ever really gets answered. And I think it would be the part where that would be um, particularly interesting. I think if they were ever to do a sequel about this movie, it would be much in the same way um, The Godfather 2 is kind of done, where uh, if, if I were to present it or if I were to attack it, it's how this thing that had such good intentions and um, such ended up being corrupted and becoming something completely different at a, at a different time and place. But what exactly motivated Mark to freeze out Eduardo? You kind of get hints at it. You kind of have, or the way they present it, I think is intended to um, try and get you to project your own conclusion on that particular moment. But they never really say straight out why uh, he cuts out his best friend. Now, we've kind of roughly talked about it already. You've kind of made mentions to it that you think it might have been just purely a business decision. Um, I think there are hints that um, they try to suggest that this was some sort of retribution. But uh, I guess what do you think might have motivated it outside of anything we've already discussed? Sometimes you just get to a point where the people you're friends with, you sometimes wonder why you're friends with them. Because is it possible he outgrew him? Yes. I guess that's the best way of putting it. Because Jim, or we, we've discussed this. Jim Rohn said that uh, you are the five people you spend the most time with. And so, you know, at what point in time does Eduardo no longer become somebody that you feel you want to be have in your life and be that impactful? Well, I wondered since we mentioned it um, just before in the upcoming lines um, that uh, he doesn't even know how to change his own status on Facebook. He's not a coder. He's not part of that particular world. He was thinking very small time. Um, if because of where the trajectory of Facebook is and where it is now, it, even though he was somewhat of an investor and knew um, investing strength and a lot of those other things, because uh, they do mention it in the movie that he was trading in um, outside markets, uh, so foreign market shares, um, different companies in, in different foreign countries while he was in school, and he made actually quite a bit of money apparently, uh, that he at least was a knowledgeable investor, and that's what he brought to the table. But once they had other investors, I I wonder if the company and the friendship may have been part of that. But they, they represented it in a very different way in the movie that um, I think is for the cinematic quality. I just don't know if that, that's the actual reason of why, why it remains one of my uh, open questions from the movie. Uh, number two, is Mark Zuckerberg autistic? Now, I know Jesse Eisenberg, frankly, plays um, every character very much the same way, but he seems so uh, myopically focused. Uh, maybe it's that that focus that you keep alluding to all the time of like really successful people that they just have this certain mindset that's so centered that they can't see anything on the periphery and they have a very hard time envisioning anything outside of themselves. And he's been able to get away with it because the company has been so successful. But, and I don't ask this to be mean or um, degrading, but there seem to be certain uh, autistic qualities that he uh, 
possesses, not necessarily just from the movie, but you think of all the stories surrounding him and all of the things that go about it. I think there are some very successful people that are autistic. It's just one of those things where it's kind of scratching the back of my mind every time I watch this movie, whether that's just like one of the characteristics he has. I don't know enough about autism to really opine. What I would say more likely than not is, is that there is such a thin line between being super intelligent and being autistic in some ways is so, you know, it's, it's, it's so limited that it's hard to differentiate because, I mean, we've all known people who are so smart that they lack just basic functioning of other humans, whether it's socialization, um, being able to, um, uh, to have empathy to others. I mean, that's one thing that seems to be commonplace in this film is just the sheer lack of empathy that he has uh, and can convey to others around him. So this is where I don't know where the difference is between the movie and real life. And it's part of the reason that I asked the question in the first place and kind of what I was getting at. And it might have been somewhat irresponsible of me to bring it up as um, autistic. I will say he does have children. He does or he is married to uh, somebody that he met after this movie takes place. It's it's one of those things where at least the way the movie is presented makes it seem like he's maybe not autistic, but like sociopathic, that he just lacks an ability to connect with people on an emotional level or understand their thinking or even care. And I think some of that is uh, and where I um, struggle with Facebook as a modern company is particularly in the sense that they don't seeming they're they're so focused on and I think Brendan brought this up earlier in the podcast, but so focused on quote unquote connecting the world that nothing else matters. And whether that's a, a genocide in Southeast Asia or um, handing over a political election to uh, a uh, authoritarian light uh, candidate or any of the other things that you can connect to all of the quote unquote scandals of Facebook over the last you know, five to six years, it doesn't seem like they have this notion of caring. Maybe it's a willful ignorance, but, or it's just simply a thing that they, they just don't tend to focus on. I'm not sure what it is, but it's why I have such a problem with Facebook as a company going forward and why I even bring this up to begin with, because it's hard for somebody like me who is really attempting. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. And by far, I wouldn't say anybody's perfect on an empathetic level, but at least I am making a concerted effort to try and understand other people constantly and be that type of person because that's what I want out of other people. So for me, I, I just simply don't understand how you couldn't want to be more empathetic. I have a very tricky spot relating to people like that. And it's why I have such a problem with them and what they've done and the consequences, because they just kind of gloss over it. And it's like, it doesn't matter unless it affects a bottom line. 
the last question I had is a possible sequel, but I will rely on Reddit for that one. So if you don't have any final questions uh, going on, I think we can uh, cut this as the episode. Uh, yeah, and, and I just have one last thing that came to me while we were recording. We should name our rubric. Why or what do you mean by that? We should give it a name. We should uh, call it Stanley. Stanley Rubric. For anybody not um, able to see the video of this, I'm quite literally shaking my head. I thought he was being serious, and he made a terrible dad joke. I think it's funny. I think I'm going to default to that one, but yeah, okay. So we'll turn to Stanley, our rubric. I think every one of our guests is going to groan from now on, but honestly... It's it's on the level of our last episode from Airplane, um, how bad that joke is, and yet it's going to be funny to watch everybody groan <laughs> as we bring that up. <laughs> I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Join us next week. We will be discussing Bull Durham, as I mentioned before, with Roger Walkoff. Uh, stick around on this feed for that one. Uh, please email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to be an upcoming guest or uh, have something that you'd like to promote. Um, we'd definitely love to hear any feedback that uh, any of our regular audience members uh, has for the show. Uh, the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Perfect Purple Planet Music. Thanks, everyone, and have a great rest of your week. 